0: Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on. John, uh, I've heard some great interviews with you, but I imagine many folks on the podcast um, may or may not have heard your, your background. So I'm curious if you just start with a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in the type of work you're doing today.
1: Yeah, I can try. Uh, you know, I used to think, uh, you know, I do work as you probably know in the area of the mind science and the mind is sort of a complicated uh, processing organism, if you will, or the, bot- the the brain. And so we actually don't know as much about ourselves as we think we do. We make up stories, uh, not that they're lies, but they're not completely accurate either. Uh, so I don't know, you know, sort of like, what made you who you are? It's like, how do I know? I, I've, never, I've never been anyone else. <laughs> so, uh, You know, but I, I come from a very loving family. Uh, I've always had a deep sense of um, caring about people generally, uh, including my family, and always very much concerned about. Um, Fairness uh, from a very early age, and at some point, um, I decided that if I had any special talents, uh, I should use them for the greater good and the common good. Um, and you know, I, I that inclination uh, I goes back at least to when I was 11 years old, maybe even a little further. Uh, so I don't know exactly why. I mean, it, it's almost like to me, uh, as interesting a question is why wouldn't someone do that? You know why wouldn't you you devote your life to um, taking care of um, the planet and other people? And at a deeper level, I would say it's not altruism in a narrow sense because I feel like I am part of the planet and other people. So it's not like just I'm taking care of other people or I'm caring about other people. It's like uh, the African saying, which is, I am because you are. Uh, so if we believe that, if we live that, then I have to be concerned about you or I'm not really concerned about myself either.
0: Is, is any of that awakening related to the story of when you stood up in the church and asked about the Chinese?
1: Is, is well, <laughs> certainly, certainly. Uh, you know, that's an expression of that story. When uh, You know, it, it seems to me, and as I've gotten older and uh, reading stuff, that uh, in some ways the best of Christianity was an awareness and a, a, a doctrine that says we're all God's children. Um, and whether one's a theist or not, um, if we're, it basically says, in a sense, we're all connected and we all um, have some shared spiritual grounding. Um, and to me, that's the best of Christianity. Uh, but it's also present in other religious teachings and just in humanity. And I took that very seriously. Uh, but also, at a more immediate level. That's to reflect my family. That's who my family is, and that's how I grew up. And so I think a lot of people growing up, you know, you sort of have these wonderful ideals as children, and then reality sort of creeps in, and they're contradictions. And so part of growing up is how do you deal with those contradictions? So we can sort of reject the sort of openness and what people might call the naivete of childhood, or you can actually start grappling with that and trying to make that real. So that those ideals are aspirational and, and foundational uh, and not just childhood fantasies. Um, but what you're making reference to for your listeners is my sense that when I was 10, 11 years old, the reality that Chinese were not going to go to heaven because they were not baptized in the name of Jesus. And to me, the idea at 11 of saying a billion people are going to go to hell and have never had a chance to even be exposed to Jesus that can't be right. I mean, there's something wrong with that picture. And it didn't matter that it was coming out of a church doctrine from adults that I respected and revered. It still seemed to me fundamentally wrong. And um, when I posed that question to a church, they couldn't give an answer. So I left at 11 and never went back.
0: And, you know, one of the things I – I really like and appreciate about you is you speak very authentically and powerfully about issues like civil rights, structural racism, poverty, democracy, and you're intentional about the language and the invitation. It's, um, and I'm curious, you, you just have a way of inviting people in to the discussion about very difficult Topics, um, and I'm curious if you have you always had that approach, or have you developed it, or what's what sort of your been your experience with that language of like inviting versus sort of like maybe calling out folks. I'm curious.
1: Yeah, and I think you know I've I, I probably done some of both, and I'm, I'm sure there have been times when I was more into, as you would say, calling out and even accusing, and there are times when I was uh, more uh, organized around. Uh, anger and, 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 and even potential violence. Um, and, uh, you know, something like there were good people and there were bad people. There were uh, people who are deserving and people who are less deserving. Um, and I think life sort of taught me that that's not, the life is not so simple. Uh, you know, a good movie is a movie where you reflect the complexity of people. You know the the multiplicity of people. That we're not all good. We're not all bad. We're we live in situations, and we're capable of doing many different things. And then, of course, it helped also that if you think of um, spiritual teaching, uh, you know that's oftentimes a central part of spiritual teaching. When you talk about Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, is to recognize that people are complicated. and they're capable of doing, we all are capable of doing incredibly harsh things uh, and inc- incredibly uh, beautiful things. And uh, and so if you see someone in that space of doing something harsh, it should not be tolerated. But it doesn't mean they're not capable of uh, reclaiming uh, their beauty. And of course, that's has really been true of my, myself as well. I've done things that I'm not proud of, uh, and I'd like to think that uh, I've done things that I feel good about more often than not. Um, so I also think it's, in a sense, um, growing up with the complexity of life and maturing and, and learning to uh, care and even love people who do things that I wouldn't otherwise uh, be proud of, uh, whether it's family members or friends. And at the same time, not to tolerate uh, people dominating, marginalizing, and hurting other people. So. Uh, but no, I didn't, I didn't always have that willingness to hold complexity in my life. Um, uh, but certainly that's been uh, a long time coming.
0: Yeah, it's been of particular interest to me, like, I, I previously in more of a meditation context. They, there's like teachers in like Buddhism who are more of the arrow. They like push you and are very harsh, but it's like from love, you know? And then there's mm-hmm, teachers mm-hmm. who are – very forgiving and always like it's okay keep trying and i I, i'm kind of curious does that how does that translate into something like the racial justice movement and is one way more effective than the the other i'm curious if you've had any thoughts on that
1: well i think i think the call upon us is to actually build something where we all um uh, where we all belong and that hasn't always been clear so they've been part of our history as as a people uh, as a nation, uh, as a race, when you know it's like we're the only one, and we define that where that we narrowly we're the only ones to count. If the other guys, the other women, the other people, they're bad, and and their stories and their movies and their they actually underscore that. Uh, and so you know, there's a period of time when I was very influenced by people like um, Chairman Mao, for uh, example, who. Uh, it was very harsh and, uh, but he also did some wonderful things. It's not a simple story. He's still revered in China because he unified China. Uh, but he also probably caused millions of people to die. Um, and, uh, and so I think in a sense, the world, um, requires our ability to harm and our, our need to, uh, engage in love is sort of both going up exponentially. So it seems to me that the next iteration of mass harm in the world will be the end of human life on the planet. So, which means in a sense that the next iteration of human caring and human love has to be something that actually transcends our ability to hurt each other. I mean, think about uh, World War I, World War II, uh, Bismarck. Those were tremendous wars. But they didn't have the atomic bomb. The World War II ended with the explosion of two atomic bombs. Now there are thousands and thousands of atomic bombs all around the world. And the bomb that was, uh, uh exploded in Japan on the Japanese people, those were crude, small instruments to, compared to what we have now. So if we have another major, uh, war where we no holes barred, uh, we don't survive it. Uh, so in a sense, I guess what I'm saying is that in some ways, I think there's really only one alternative. And of course, one alternative is not an alternative at all. It means one uh, requirement. We have to learn. As, as King said, you know, we uh, either come together as friends or we uh, perish as fools. Um, so we have to actually come together as brothers and sisters or we perish as fools. That's, I think, ultimately the charge uh, to all of us right now. You know, we're talking about crossing a Rubicon in terms of uh, climate change. Uh, and we don't get to mess up Earth three or four times. You know, we have one Earth, we do it right or we don't do it. Uh, and those kind of urgencies weren't as clear 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, and so I think what's called upon us is actually more urgent.
0: And I, I guess that dovetails with your work around bridging and also the othering and belonging approach, could you could you give folks um, a bit of a background on your work on on some of those concepts?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, um, and, and then there's um, we have a little animated video on online about bridging and breaking. So there, these are first very simple concepts, but they actually point to something quite subtle and, and nuanced. Um part of it is, is around how we constitute ourselves. How do we think of who's the we um uh, and the we are those people who belong uh and so it's the process of belonging and then there's the people who quote unquote don't belong they're they're like they're, they're others and thats called othering. um and for people who don't belong uh um part of the reason they not belong is in our story the stories we carry with us the stories that make us who we are, is that they're somehow less than or they're a threat to the we, they're a threat to who I am. So what happens uh, with, and there's no natural we and there's no natural other. We, we, we actually are constantly uh, reconfiguring who's the we and rejoining boundaries, who's the other. Uh, and a lot of stuff, that's done through stories. But they, uh, when we have a sense of we, it's largely, it can be largely stable, but it's always situational, which means that when things change, the environment change, the culture change, then our sense of we is also called upon point change. That the change itself produces stress and anxiety. And that's true not just of people, it's true of animals. If uh, if, if, if animals on an environment, they are functioning relatively well, and and then the environment change, and the, the food source change, the heat change, they're they're literally under stress, and they may be under anxiety. There's the debate as to whether or not animals can experience anxiety, uh, but they clearly experience stress. And that's true for us as well. We're animals. We're what I call spiritual animals. Uh, what do we do with that anxiety and stress? Um, well, there are two major stories and one minor story. Um and two major moves and one minor move. And one is called uh, breaking. Uh, we actually take that stress and tell a story about it in such a way that we break from some of the causes of the stress. And especially when the stress is associated with other people. So what are the stresses that I'm talking about? There are four major ones that we are confronting now in life, and they're climate change, globalization, technology, and migration or people demographic Um, and um, up until fairly recently people lived in relatively stable communities you you didn't see new people you didn't see uh, you know your religion was the same religion with everybody around you Uh, your food stayed pretty stable Uh, and globalization these four factors are interrelated changed all that now you you run into people of different religion of a different philosophy, of different food, different values, um, and that difference creates stress. Uh, that change creates stress or anxiety. Now, now, the anxiety is biological in a sense. That's what uh, animals react to changing environments. Uh, but it's not positive or negative in any kind of social sense. Whether this positive positive or negative, is actually determined by the major stories that we tell ourselves, which is actually uh, perpetrated largely by our leaders. Uh, and so one story is that these changes, especially as they relate to other people, is somehow threatening our existence. These people are destroying us in some way. They're attacking who we are. And so when you think about BritX, when, when people say, let's leave the EU, part of this organized around the theory that there are all these immigrants coming to Britain who are not really British and and, Um, and they're gonna destroy the British way of life. Think about something like gay marriage in the United States. The same argument is that if we allow gays to get married, that's gonna destroy the institution of marriage, which in some ways is gonna implicate us. Uh, And uh, and so there's this notion that there's this other, that if we allow them in, it's gonna destroy who we are. There's a lot of examples of this that's very close. For example, one of the arguments Uh, in the 1960s against ending segregation was that if blacks and white children went to school together, it would destroy Southern life. Now, some of us would say, well, that's good. Southern life itself was problematic. And I think it was. But even as it's being problematic, people's identities were still wrapped up in it. And so one story again is that these changes are threatening at some deep level, at some deep, not just economic level, but ontological level. Uh, and therefore we have to do something to sort of reclaim this imaginary past uh, and and stop this change. that's breaking. Bridging is when you say yes, we're changing uh, but we're changing to something better and we're changing to a new we uh, so I' uh, going back to the south for a minute when people talked about the new south a new south it was more open there was more um, accepting uh, then that's bridging when you see the the diversity that's come with uh, the late 20th and 21st century, that that's actually a positive thing.
2: Uh,
1: And so you imagine a larger we uh, that is more inclusive, Uh, that's bridging. Um, And so what are the stories that we're being fed today In the face of rapid change because the change is happening faster and it's going to accelerate so the conditions that create that stress and anxiety are not going to go away they're not uh, so Trump is an expression of that he's not simply the cause of it he he's adds to it himself but this roiling that we're experiencing in the United States in Britain in France in Germany in um, Russia in South Africa, in Brazil, all over the world, is like these rapid changes are happening, and what people are experiencing collectively, not individually, is that not only is the world changing, but somehow it's implicating who I am. Uh, and then the question is, is it implicating it in a terrible way, which then calls for breaking, cause for building walls, cause for imprisoning people, cause for killing people, cause for more dehumanization, cause for separation, cause for in the United States context, white national uh, uh, ethnic expression, a, a claiming that the country is only for one small group and everybody else is other. Not just whites, but Christians. Not just Christian, but Protestants. And so you keep getting smaller and smaller we, and everybody else becomes other. Uh, or uh, do we, as we do here in California to some extent, uh, really embrace our, our growing diversity and, and recognize that, we are changing, it, but it's a good thing. We're changing into something better. Uh, and so the, the right wing nationalists are engaged in aggressive, violent breaking. Uh, liberals, from our perspective, engage in benign breaking in the sense that they say, well, you know, okay, Latinos can come in to the United States because they're just like us. So they, they still engage in a kind of erasure. Mm. You can be like, point. Uh, but, but first you have to be like me. So I make the point that the intervention of othering is not sameing. You uh, know, there's a lot of really wonderful stories about that. I mean, you think about how this country treated Native Americans. It's like, first of all, you know, cut your hair, stop speaking your language, become like Western, Christian, white people, and you're okay. You're not okay in your present condition. You have to be transformed. So, that's the liberal expression. And, and it, sometimes it's expressed in, again, a benign way, but it's actually quite pernicious. And that is that we're all the same. You know, that, that, uh, why are we making a big deal? Gay marriage and, and straight marriage, they're actually just the same. Okay, so maybe people do love a little differently, but really they're the same. Uh, and so, uh, so the right wing nationalists are afraid of difference. And in some ways, so is the liberal. The liberal just denies difference. And so belonging and bridging in a deep way uh, actually embraces difference, uh, but not categorically, because even as we embrace it, embrace it it's changing it. Uh, what was different becomes familiar, What was strange becomes uh, 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 not strange anymore. Uh, and it's a co-creating process. Um, so it's not just joining something. It's actually co-creating something. So that's what the bridging and breaking actually plays with. That's what othering and belonging is about. Uh, and this process has been going on since people have existed, um, and sometimes they had mountains and rivers that made it easier. It's just people live on the other side of a mountain. I never have to see them, and never have to think about them. Okay, maybe they have another religion, but I don't know what it is. But if the world has become smaller, uh, everything's happening in real time, uh, and I have to deal with it. And uh, you know, so something as simple as you know, like well, you need to live, grab on to life because you only live life once. And my response is always, unless you're Hindu. And <laughs> you know, the whole concept of even living life once no longer makes sense. Or Buddhists, talk or are some Yeah, or <laughs> Buddhists, exactly. Or someone says, you know, we have to really make sure we keep our eye on the North Star. Said, not, if in South, not if you're in South Africa. Uh, so it, one of our assumptions, the, the way we sort of constitute our lives is ourselves is not conscious. We're not aware when we say the North Star that we're talking about a geographic position only available to a certain group of people. We think we're making universal claims and we're not.
0: You know, John, you you brought up something that I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, So I've been with a multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic group, been discussing white supremacy, not, not in terms of white supremacists like Nazis and the KKK, but just the unconscious white supremacy that is, permeated in our culture. And in a way, it can be seen as a, an, um, a negative, like, a, well, it, that's too rough of a term for people. You know, let's talk about diversity and inclusion. That's a little safer. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've also found that a lot of white people and definitely the people of color that I've spoken with, it's almost freeing in a way to, to specifically name white supremacy as an unconscious pattern that affects mm-hmm. all of us. And I'm curious if that... If using that term in your work or like how you view the use of that term and like what, what your sort of opinions are of it, um, yeah.
1: Well, Ryan, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, like, as I said, like great questions, I don't know if I have a great answer, but I have an answer. And it's, it's a little bit complicated. So um, first of all, I, I oftentimes say the analysis and the communication are not the same. So it may be that in other words, when we do an analysis about something, it, it, we may unearth some things that are true to the analysis. How we communicate that actually might be quite different. Uh, and sometimes we conflate the two. We assume that under analysis, if you it up on a wall, it's the truth, people are going to gravitate toward it. And actually, as we know, there are many truths and there are many stories, and, and, and things are not so straightforward. Um, so um, the idea of the supremacy of rightness is is uh, very important in terms of American history, and to some extent, European or English history. But it's not the whole story. Uh, and, um, and 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 there's some parts that are missing that's important, but then it's also, you have to think about the experience, like we talk about the sunrise. Of course, we know the sun doesn't rise, or uh, spin, but we don't talk about uh, the, the, the Earth spinning and, and then therefore the illusion that the sun is actually rising. We experience it still, still, despite the scientific fact of the sun actually rising or setting. I Neither's mean, is true. But the experience is of the sun rising and setting. Um, and so, quite is actually a complicated construct uh, as is black or other or people of color. And at some point in the United States in particular, there was a concept that of white whiteness, something being special or supreme about whiteness. But when you go back to that formation, the real power brokers were not whites; they were the elites who were not raced in that at that time. So when uh, slavery was being formulated and racial categories being uh, articulated and created in the United States, it wasn't whites that were at the top. Whites were the middle stratum. The elite stratum were the elites. And that's important because, to some extent, that remained true. Uh, it wasn't white people that were really supreme; it was the elites. And elites and whites are not the same. I mean, they, there's a lot of overlap, but they're not the same. Um, also, there are, and people identify, even people in the middle stratum, uh, who are typically light-skinned and call white, they identify with the elites, and they police uh, the non-whites, but they weren't the elites themselves. So even the idea of supremacy was selling people a bill of goods um, and that's again that's our history but if you come up you know uh, we're coming up on the 400 year anniversary of slavery but if you come up to the present time a lot's happened and a friend of mine david Brodiger, wrote a book called the wages of whiteness and he talked about all the benefits associated with being white and i have sort of jokingly said to him, you need to write a new book called the declining wages of whiteness because the benefits associated with being whites in the united states and in europe has actually been in decline uh, and so we're actually talking about a bygone era, largely in terms of the supremacy of white as in, whiteness as an ideology. It's still there, and Trump is trying to reassert it, but it's, it doesn't quite have the same ring. So if you talk to many people who identify as white, especially working class, rural, whatever, what's what's supreme about them? Now they may still think, you know, well I can do whatever. But you go to Appalachia, you go to rural California, rural Georgia whites, the benefits associated with whites are in steep decline. Uh, And uh, and so in day-to-day activity, there's not the categorical assumption uh, that whiteness is good. And if we talk about moving beyond white supremacy, which I think we need to, and even moving beyond white ideology, which is closely linked but separate from white supremacy. I think we need to. We have to do it in such a way that we also fold in the possibility, uh, the hopes, the struggles of people who are currently classified as white. And sometimes when we talk about white supremacy, we, uh, we end up erasing them. And, and so this is actually a complicated another form of breaking, right? And so when we talk about people of color, and we talk about um, basically this dominant group, this is the ideology of whiteness, and we're going to replace this dominant group with a dominant group of people of color. It was complicated because there are hundreds of different people that we call people of color, including Latinos who are not, who are every color, right? So it's like they're every race. Uh, but implicit in that is that as we displace white dominance, we, we, we will displace it with potentially people of color dominance. Uh, and I don't think that's, that's really our project. And I think we should remove that ambiguity and say, really, what we're trying to do is get rid of dominance, period. Uh, That, yes, we're against white dominance, which has largely been the history of the United States, um, in its various expressions. But we don't want to replace it with people of color dominance. We actually want to get rid of the notion that one group is dominant, should be dominant over another group. Uh, And we haven't been clear on that. And in that new space, we won't center whiteness, which we've done in this country for most of our existence. Uh but neither will we erase it. Uh and so what it means to be white in this new story, we haven't actually figured that out. We know it would be different than uh white normativity, we know it'll be different than white dominance, we know it'll be different than whites being in control, we know uh but so what does it look like?
2: Uh
1: and um so anyway, it's a it's a complicated story. So the idea of white privilege, uh white supremacy, uh really is a multifaceted concept. And again, dealing with an analytical level, that's one thing, but when you're talking to people who are having the experience of seeing their lives truncated because they don't have healthcare, because they don't have good jobs, because they don't have a community, because they don't have good schools, and they're phenotypically white, uh, how do they experience white supremacy? Uh, and they may still, they may still feel like they're better than a person of color. They may still experience that, but it's eroding. And it's been eroding for years, and it should erode. And we don't want um, we don't want any group to be able to claim supremacy. Um, But in terms of challenging that concept of white supremacy, sometimes we can play it with people who are phenotypically white. Sometimes they do they do as well, uh, but we have to be careful about that.
0: That was incredibly helpful. It's almost like you study this type of topic for a living or something. I, I, uh, you know, the. the yes, and I, I think like maybe the people I'm having the conversation with are sort of like upper middle class white liberal Bay Area people, so it's like not quite mm-hmm. as threatening as like I, I probably wouldn't say you're a white you're unconsciously engaging in a white you know white supremacy with a, a Appalachian coal miner you know so I do right that's, right
1: exactly it's important no I I, went, I did some work in Appalachian and and uh, people talked about and I at one point I was sort of jokingly but also seriously saying look. You have intergenerational poverty. Um, you have you are dying, you know, you, for men, dying in the high 40s, low 50s. Uh, you are, have terrible health care. Uh, you have no mobility. So, so why do you even bother calling yourself white? Right. And maybe that's the only thing they have. Uh, but I said to them and I was, you know, being provocative. I would not trade places with you. I'm an African-American man. I have health care. I have tenure. I have money. I have, you know, whatever. Uh, and I'm not saying I still want, you know, I'm yes, man, I get stopped by the police. And yes, people still, you know, have you know shopping while black. And so I have the experience of, of the overlay of blackness uh, as a, a negative concept perpetrated by America. Uh, but I would not trade places with uh, the Appalachian whites. Uh, and they know that. I mean, they, they, when I go there and I don't, I don't go as much as I used to. I used to live in Ohio. I used to go a lot and do work there. There's always the assumption, why are you here? Why are you driving? You know, you're driving a fancy car and you're dressed differently. And, you know, are you uppity? It's like, well, maybe I am. Why do you talk like you're educated? Because I am educated. My point being that we're dealing with complex concepts and we're dealing with them from a construct that's actually in, already in sharp relief. Uh, we're already seeing a re- uh, receding of the ideology of white supremacy. And to some extent, Trump is, Trumpism and Trump is really an effort to sort of hold this, hold on to this concept. And while we have to challenge it, we also have to go beyond it. What's next? What will we look like in a society where uh, no group dominates? And, and even liberals and progressive, from my perspective, we have, we don't do a good job of that. Uh, because too often we sort of just invert, um, and, uh, and we don't want to, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, The Green Book, um, interesting movie based on true story, but we look at the movie, and the critique is, it's a decent movie, so we look at the movie through the eyes of a white person. Okay, that's at best inadequate. We should be able to look at it through multiple eyes, and then since the movie's about really uh, segregation and the degradation of black people, then that position should be privileged not exclusive, excuse me, not the exclusive position, but it should be a privileged position. But instead, even in our effort to, you know, uncover uh, white racism in the South, we still look at it through the lens of whiteness, almost to the exclusion of people of color.
0: You know, what are your comments about the sort of elites as the top rank that that resonates with, have you read the book Winners Take All by Anand? Mm Okay, great. Mm -hmm. This makes the conversation a lot easier. How do you feel about that book? (laughs) Because I feel like, um, you know, in particular, you know, I'm involved in the social entrepreneurship, the certified B corporation, community impact investing world. And it's really that book has really done a great job of shaking up the sort of um, belief that you can do good by do well, like endlessly. Give back, but never look at the taking. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not that all, not that all social enterprises don't look at taking. And, but I'm curious. Do you believe in his thesis around government, um, the sort of a, a re engagement with at the policy level as like the one of the the things that we really need to to reinvigorate uh, in our society?
1: Certainly. I mean, I sometimes I work work a fair amount in the tech world myself, and I sometimes. Describe this is overgeneralization. Generalization, that world as um, progressive libertarians.
0: Progressive libertarians. Uh, I remember you said that with Bell Hooks. Uh,
1: and and the notion is we don't want anybody. We, okay, you know, we're, we're we're decent people. We and 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 you know we have black friends, we have gay friends, we have you know, transgender friends, we have whatever. Uh, but it's our money. We're smart. Uh, we made it, and we'll decide what to do with it. So in that sense, and when I say progressive libertarians, I'm serious. They're not really Democrats. They don't really believe in government. They don't really believe in the people. They don't believe in, uh, and, and, and I've, I've said this in some of these meetings. In my mind, all wealth is, co- is common wealth. Uh, and we may allocate it in a certain way. That is, if you quote unquote invented the next iPhone, maybe we should give you some extra war, but you didn't earn that because you're building on a platform. And that requires collective knowledge and collective. Had very little to do with you, uh, and so I don't think we can get to where we need to get through through progressive libertarianism. So yes, I think we're take that it takes all. Actually, and no, the the, the the charge would be that and I just came back from China. You know, the government is overbearing. We don't believe in statism. We don't believe in planned planned economy. You know, anything to the extreme can be a problem, including the concept of market fundamentalism. Uh, but if you if you're people centered and if you're life centered, then progressive libertarianism doesn't uh, doesn't get us very far. Uh, it doesn't save the planet. You know, it, it, we don't wait want to wait for each company or each billionaire to decide uh, they're going to invest in schools, as opposed to you know what there's a thing called tax, and uh, and we're going to collectively decide. How are we going to tax those billions and how we're we going to spend those billions? those billions? So you can create your foundation. That's great. Uh, and I work with a lot of really, uh, very decent people who have billions and actually run foundations. But ultimately the model is, is flawed. Uh, and, and again, uh, it's not, we want to go back to the Soviet style planned economy. Uh, but we do want to really empower people. We do want to say this, this, this is our collective world. Um, you know, the extent, ex, so extension of, um, sort of, uh, that will be say by billionaires. It's like, well, why don't people, someone have a billion, why don't they have more votes than the rest of us? Well, in fact, they do, but we actually say that's not good. We actually begrudge, and appropriately so, uh, the way we do campaign financing, that you shouldn't be able to buy an election. Why not? What's wrong with buying an election? Uh... What's wrong with it is that it's actually a degradation of people. We're saying, if you don't have money, you don't count as a person. You don't have a voice. You don't have agency. You don't have power. Um, And so, yes, I think that um, and I'm not against the market. I'm not against people making money. I'm not against people being rich. But that's a social question, not someone's entitled to it. So you're not entitled to all the money you apparently make. we might decide again to allocate it a certain way or not. Uh, but it's not something that someone should feel from my perspective they have a right to because they worked hard. I, I say seriously that my father who was a sharecropper who is now maybe eight years, years old, I have never met anyone who's worked harder than him. And I met, you know, ahead of Facebook and ahead of Google and uh, you know, um, yes, they work hard. I, I met lawyers and doctors. They, but no one works harder than my dad, and my dad's means in terms of wealth and income is extremely modest.
0: I love just all the stories you tell about your dad, and so I'm encouraging other people to because <laughs> I know we only have got 10 minutes left on this podcast, but for other people to check out, like your uh on being interview with Krista Tippett was really good. Talked about your dad a lot. Um, I'm glad to hear he's still kicking at 98, you said, right? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah still kicking.
0: <laughs> um. You know, I uh, one of the things around policy that I one reason I've always been turned off by government, um, and maybe I've bought into the market fundamentalism argument in the past, but I'm sort of consciously trying to avoid it. Is like what you said earlier, which is around like things are more complex than binary, good, bad, Mm -hmm. yes, no, and and yet our Mm -hmm. political system is set up on like you vote for or against a bill, and like there's no Gray area. So it, it almost seems like does the way our politics work like is that prob like is that inherently problematic in how we dis- decide things together?
1: Well, you, you, you asked them different questions, or let me just tease it out for a little bit. So one, the way our politics work, yes, you know, two party system, especially more recently. Uh, um, but politics and government, and polit and government and governance, are not the same thing, and so. I would agree with you that there's something wrong with our politics. There's something wrong with the way we structure government. Uh, not simply because it's binary, but it is, it is that, but also because it's bottom and sold. It's not our government, it's actually this government of the elites. The government is actually managing the uh, managing the economy for the elites, not for the people. Uh, that needs to be fixed, but that's not fixed by ser- simply turning government over to, even more so, to the elites. The question is, how do you actually make government Actually, govern for all of us, which includes making the economy be for all of us. There's the, so you need not only good government, you also need a good economy, and you can't have a good economy without a good government. Uh, and so, the critique of what is, I completely agree with you, but the solution is not therefore let's get rid of government. The critique is how do we actually get government? How do we get a government that's not just that is not just responsive to the economy? which I think is important, but also responsive to people. Uh, and, and the penultimate test is people or life itself, not how much money is being generated in the economy. It's how are people's lives being affected. Uh, and that's the role of government. But it's not, so again, I'm not anti-corporate. I'm not anti-market. Uh, but I just know the market doesn't exist without government. Uh, uh, Hardcore wrote a book called The Illusion of the Free Market, So I think the binary is like government, good government, bad government, uh, or good government, um, you know, and good economy or government, instead of seeing them as actually, uh, you know, sharing something and having a responsibility and that responsibility ultimately
0: being people themselves, all people. Yeah. Maybe one of the last uh, few more questions here. Are you, what do you think about um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the justice Democrats? Do you think that's a, step forward or more of the same? What do you think?
1: Well, I met Cortez. In fact, I helped host a a fundraiser for uh, when she was running, although she had effectively won because she had already won the primary in New York. Um, And I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for it. You know, she brings a lot of insights, energy, uh, idea of a green economy. Um, What I do worry a little bit and this is maybe not her per se, but it's, it's like, I think we do have to the idea of not compromising, the idea of not being able to work with people who disagree with us, worries me. And I think that's been, that was the uh, play card of the Tea Party. Uh, but I'm, uh, and I do think we have to be clear about our values and have to fight for our values. But I think part of that is also looking for ways to connect with people who may or may not agree with everything we say. Uh, so that that concerns me. Um, I think it's too early. I mean, she hasn't been, you know, spent been one day in Congress yet, so it's hard to, so I don't want to judge her. Uh, I think as she sort of gets in Congress and sort of deals with some of the complexities uh, of other people and of the institution, which needs to be radically changed, um, but that's going to be a process, uh, I think something will happen. Um, so I wouldn't judge her too quickly now. I, I love what I hear of her values in terms of, a green economy in terms of universal health care. Uh, um, and I know, I mean, I, I, a lot of these people, I don't know her that well, but I know a lot of these people quite well. Uh, I, I think categorical positions are somewhat problematic, so, uh, uh, you know, for example, some people will say corporations are evil. I would say corporations are misaligned. And it's not corporations that are necessarily evil the way they are aligned in this country is problematic. The solution to me is to better align them, is not to get rid of them. Uh, so I think that there's, you know, when as you were the conversation with government, you see something not functioning well, you can say, let's kill it, or you can say, let's fix it. We need government, uh, we need governance. Uh, I would say we need some democratic expression. Uh, and we might need something akin to corporations, uh, but where it again is serving people. And I think um, some of the folks that are associated with the progressive democratic movement, to me, uh, don't
0: make those uh, nuanced um, distinctions. Yes, I um, I think that the it's probably a whole nother podcast on like language and like how we communicate because that's um, uh, absolutely critical. So I, I want to appreciate you for bringing that up. Um, in the last uh, couple minutes here, so one question we like to ask guests is what do you need right now and how can the listeners help you grow this next economy?
1: Well, a couple of things I would say, and that is that one is that the world is changing, it's changing very fast. That change is not going to stop. There's going to be anxiety. Uh, the, 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 um, one of the things that some of the, from my perspective, progressives have not understood is the role identity will play in terms of restructuring the world. So a lot of people talk about identity politics like that's the evil. And I say it's not identity politics that's the problem, it's breaking politics that's the problem. People will make, uh, will have politics around identity, appropriately so. Uh, But how do they do it where they bridge instead of break? So it's not identity that's the problem, it's the breaking that's the problem. Uh, So how do we actually bridge in such a way that we actually engage identities and build new capacity? And it seems to me that the challenges acute. Uh, the language, the grammar, the structure, the culture are largely not in place. We're still using tools and ideas that were developed 40, 50, 60 years ago that are starting to be outdated. Uh, and so we need to give birth to something new, uh, but we need to do it in the, in the spirit of really holding on to each other's humanity, really capable of caring and indeed sometimes loving each other uh, without being polyamic. I am not you know, fight the stuff that's really problematic, whether it's uh, letting children die in detention or whether it's rolling back the Voting Rights Act. So I'm not saying caring for people don't mean that we don't play really in a very clear way around our core values. But in doing that, we have to be careful about um, uh, dehumanizing the other. Uh, so, uh, so part of it is there has to be some space at every level, institutionally, culturally, politically, policy, and inter- inter- interpersonally, to giving birth to something new. Uh, and like I said, I think it will require a new language, uh, new practices, uh, new possibilities. And we don't have much time. Um, you know, we are rushing toward destruction. Um, so we need to be thoughtful, but not too deliberate. We don't need to be paralyzed by the analysis. Uh, as King talked about, where there's some things that are clear. Um, and, and I, I hope we can deal with some of those clear things right away. Climate, uh, the issues of migration, which is only going to increase. Um, and even the nation state as we deal with these global problems is, is woefully inadequate. Doesn't mean it should go away, but it does have to be reconsidered. Uh, and then the last two things I'll say is that in my mind, all these things have a spiritual grounding. Uh, and, um, uh, and so to be in touch with what that means collectively, and what the language of that, the practice of that is, and in these sometimes dreary times, to look for a positive input, as well as occasionally having some fun. And
0: so, in the last uh, question here is, how can folks learn more about your work? Like, where can they go? And could you give a plug about the Othering and Belonging Conference for folks who don't know about that? And,
1: yeah. You know, like that? So. Our, our website is the Hof Institute, um, and, and, uh, that's a good place to go and find out more about us. And we have a conference that comes up, uh, October 8th to 10th, um, in Oakland, um, and it's open to the public. And so we'd like people to, to come and even if you can't come to, uh, stay involved. And, uh, and again, so if you go to Hof Institute, H-A-A-S Institute, Type that into, you don't need the URL that's all you need if you want to type something out UC Berkeley um, it'll take you to our institute and you can find out more about the work that we do
0: well thanks again John it's been a pleasure having you on the show um, and I, I look forward to continuing to following and supporting your work because I think you're on the leading edge of something very big next economy now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to Lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.